Welcome into the NHL at the Rink podcast. Dan Rosen here, Sean Rourke out there. Sean, the playoffs are well underway. Lots of action going on. It seems like it's non-stop action. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, how you holding up? How you handling all of it? Look, I mean, it is. It's non-stop and it's great because you don't have to really do anything else and there's nothing else to do. You could sit down for the for early. It was, you know, the qualifiers, it was noon and pretty much have your day planned out. Now it's mostly three o'clock, so you get that extra three hours to yeah. spend with your family, and I'm sure everybody's appreciative of that. But then you got a good ten to twelve hours of hockey every day, and and the hockey's been exceptional. I, I just, I don't think we could say it enough. What a testament to these athletes that in the middle of a pandemic, with so many different things going on, and and an inability to train in traditional methods that basically the puck dropped on the first day and there has been no, it, it was at full speed and it's actually picked up since then I, i'm i'm truly amazed and, and i've always held all pro athletes in a high regard but i am truly amazed at the caliber of play in this in this tournament no i, I agree with you it's looked like the stanley cup playoffs it's felt like the stanley cup playoffs there's no question about it we'll talk a lot about the stanley cup playoffs in this podcast we're bringing on uh, brendan burke who does a lot of work. He, the broadcaster for the New York Islanders, also does some work for NBC. He's been very busy. And we also have Darren Pang on from Fox Sports Midwest, calls the games with uh, John Kelly for the Blues. So we'll talk a little Blues, Canucks with Darren Pang, a lot of Islanders, Capitals with Brendan Burke. But, Sean, before we get into the playoffs and everything, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up the big news in hockey, the sad, tragic news in hockey, the passing of Dale Howard Chuck on Tuesday from stomach cancer, died at the age of 57, I'm sorry, Monday, uh, died at the age of 57. And Tim Campbell, our colleague at NHL.com, Sean, I think nailed it with his story on Dale Howard Chuck, had some great comments from Wayne Gretzky. Um, I unfortunately didn't have the pleasure of meeting Dale Howarchuk or covering Dale Howarchuk. So my perspective on this is more limited to what I'm reading about Dale Howarchuk and everything that I'm reading about him. Obviously, we knew the type of player he was, but now you're really learning or I'm really learning about the type of person he was and uh, tragic that he's passed too way too early. But the memories uh, and the remembrances of Dale Howarchuk pouring in have been, you know, really heartwarming to read. Yeah, it, look, it's a testament to who he was. A, the people who have been quoted about his life, like it, it's everybody you could think of that in hockey. And, and B, the tenor of those comments. They're all very personal. To me, so many guys, what was shocking was so many guys were like, oh, you know, I talked to Dale in the last two days. Yeah. Uh, you know, before he passed, Dale spent his last couple of days calling all of his friends in hockey and reliving what his career was and what his friendships with those people were. And, and those were the stories I loved, you know, Rod Brindamore talked about playing with him late in his career and being like, he's a hall of famer and we're both centers and we're put on the same line and we go out and Dale Howarchuk was like, Rod, you play center, you know, I'll <laughs> play left wing. And, and Rod's like, I don't remember what he played like. I don't remember what he accomplished, but I'll never forget that moment. And I'll never forget his kindness to me. And, and then the other story that I loved and Tim had in his story and Tim has such deep Winnipeg roots. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how far he goes back with it, it is the Canada cup story and Wayne Gretzky, Dale Horachuk and Mario Lemieux being on the same line and they got to go take a defensive zone face off. And what came out of that was the most famous play in hockey. Maybe is, is the Lemieux Gretzky, Lemieux goal um, but they had to win a face-off to make that happen all three of those guys play center and nobody wanted to take the face-off and eventually Gretzky and Lemieux said Dale you take the face-off and he wins it and he starts the greatest play in the history of hockey and, and and I think that's who Dale was as a player he was a facilitator he made other people better he made all of his teammates better um, so you know I, I never really got to meet him either I spent a little time it seems like nine years ago, but it was in October at, in Regina for the outdoor game. And they had a bunch of players from Calgary and, and Edmonton, uh, Calgary and Winnipeg on a, on a DS. And they were talking about what made that rivalry so special. Dave Ellett was there, There's some, some other players. And they all talked again about Dale. Cause obviously he was sick. He was battling cancer at that point, but they all talked about Dale and how great a player he was and how he was overshadowed because of Gretzky and the Edmonton teams, but just what a spectacular player. So um, the tributes have been great. And 
I can only echo what you said way, way, way too early. Yeah, no, way too early. But the, like you said, you mentioned it. The, the, the outpouring has all referenced conversations that Dale Howarchuk has had with friends in the game in the past few days. It was, he was calling to say goodbye. And, and I, like, that, that's a, it, I can't imagine having that type of conversation, but people were reaching out to him or he was reaching out to them. And the one with Wayne Gretzky, and, and Tim quotes it, he, you know, I had a really nice conversation with Dale yesterday and his son, Eric, and we were talking about the Canada Cup, you know. So until his last days, he was talking hockey. The man loved hockey. He was a hockey lifer, and he's a hockey Hall of Famer, and he certainly will be missed. And his, his impact has been felt in these playoffs, right? When you think of when he was in Barry and all the players that, that he yeah. coached and he mentored, you know, and, and those outpourings that have come. You know, you talk about Mark Shifley. He was the guy that advocated for the Jets to take Mark Shifley. Uh, Svechnikov, he played at Barry and, and, you know, credits him a ton for the player that he became. And there were, there were a ton of other guys. I mean, that Barry team put out some pretty good NHL players while Dale was there. So, um, you know, his impact will be felt for a long, long time in this game. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's get into the games a little bit. Well, before we actually get into the games, let's talk about who's not in the games, right? I mean, there was obviously big news several days ago with Tuka Rask opting out uh, to go home to Boston to be with his family. And look, Sean, I mean, I get it. You know, this is a different time. I think the timing was odd with Tuka Rask and that when he did, based on the comments that he made about how it was difficult for him to really get engaged in the games. It doesn't feel like playoff hockey. But I can't begrudge a guy from doing this because this is this is all unique to everybody and everybody is going to handle this their own way. And, and Tuka Rask clearly felt this is the way he needed to handle it. But the Bruins are in good hands. I mean... The Bruins, as time we record this Wednesday morning, they're up three to one in the series, and they got Yaroslav Halak in net instead of Rask. They're still in good hands. That is, it's a great, it's the great insurance policy. Halak obviously was a one B in Boston, and they, they knew with back to back games that they could rely on him. But yeah, I mean, when you look at Tuca, and, and look, I kind of take some of the comments that he made before he left about not being able to get up for the games and and you know trying to be in shape and all those things. I, I've covered Tuca for a long time. Yeah. He, was a, he was our guest columnist during the Stanley Cup playoffs, during the Stanley Cup final in 2011 when he was I the remember. backup to Tim Thomas. And I had a ton of trouble trying to figure out when he was being serious, when he wasn't being serious. And, you know, so I, I think I think that Tuca is maybe on a little bit of a different level at times than, than people can really understand or that his words are taken the wrong way. So I, I don't do that. And look, the one thing that has been a saving grace for almost all of us during this pandemic is we get to spend time with our families. I've spent more time with my family in the last six months than I've spent in forever because of the nature of our business and traveling and, and having to go to New York every day. So, you know, that's the one thing out of all the bad things that have happened that I can kind of grasp onto. And, and these players don't have that opportunity. And that's another thing that makes what they're doing just to me incredible. So, you, you know, I mean, family's family and it has yeah. to, at the end of the day, it has to rule. You're going to have your family forever. You're not going to have your NHL career forever. You're not going to have your job forever. So that has to be in order, and then you make everything else work. And and who knows? Maybe we see Tuca again. I don't know. The door is open, I think. You know, you've seen other guys come back into the bubble. You just did a story yesterday on Tarasenko leaving to get his shoulder looked at and the fact that he could come back in. Pacioretty came in late. Uh, Lars Eller and Barbashev have left for the births of, of their children and then have come back into the bubble. The quarantine, as it would be if he were to come back, if the Bruins wanted him to come back, would be determined on site by the medical professionals. It could be anywhere, I would think, from four to eight days and whatever number of uh, negative tests. But, you know, I think that's a far ways off. But it, the possibility is still there if people are wondering if, if somehow Tuca could come back if the Bruins were able to go deep into the playoffs. Well, and the other thing is if the Bruins were able to go deep into the playoffs, Tuca can come back, but I don't think he's playing, you know, because they're going deep into the playoffs with Yaroslav Halak. So Halak is going to be their goalie at that point. You know, you just have to kind of go with it at that point. So we'll see. I, I think that one is very slim if Tuca is going to be able to come back, but let's flip it to the other side. Now they play today and the Bruins can close it out at 4 PM Eastern uh, today being Wednesday. So this may be old by the time you listen to this, but we got to talk about what happened, you know, to the Carolina Hurricanes, their opponent in game four. 
And the comments made, it was, I mean, obviously it was a third period that they want to forget. Uh, but Rod Brendamore saying, uh, you know, that he wants to make sure that people in this organization, that everybody's proud of how they play. And he thinks they've done that for the most part. And he'd be right about that. But that day they did not. And that's disturbing to him. I appreciate the honesty. I appreciate um, Rod being the way he is and Justin Williams and also those guys. Uh, I'm very curious to see how they do pick up the pieces from that. Uh, you know, even Rod was saying it, it could take a while to do so. And I don't know if they can do it. We'll see. But, but I, I, I guess the point I'm making here, Sean, is we see a lot of times, you know, coaches try to spin the positive. I, I appreciated Rod Brendan more for the honesty that he had right after that game and the raw emotion that he had right after that game. Look, I'm not going to go against Rod Brindamore. I don't know if you saw the feature yesterday. I did see the feature. I'm not During one of the games yes. where they had him out at the BMO <laughs> field on their off day. That dude's jacked. I'm never going to say well, anything bad the best about shape him. Of anybody in the Hurricanes organization. <laughs> oh my God, it was unbelievable. So I agree with him 100. percent But I don't. Right? Like they're not the first team that the Bruins did this to. He no. can go talk to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like you're talking about a championship pedigree team. That's what they do. I, I, I distinctly remember watching that game and it's two nothing. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is going to be a seven game series. Could this be when Carolina, you know, so much has gone wrong for the Bruins um, with, with Tuka leaving and, and such a bad qualifier round Robin where they really couldn't get on track. I'm like, is this, is this, you know, do they catch the Bruins unawares and, you know, upset them here? And then in a six-minute period in the third period, right, that starts with Reimer making a bad play and reading a, a loose puck and, and allowing that first goal to happen. But everything after that was pure Bruins, right? And the yep. thing that set it all up was that McAvoy hit on stall. And when people talk about the physical nature of the game and, you know, how maybe there's not a place for that anymore and, you know, it's become so skill-driven, and it has, but that hit – that hit changed everything. It, it got the Bruins the into the game. It woke them up. People talk about manufacturing excitement because there's no crowd. Go back and listen to that tape. Both benches. McAvoy's yeah. about to hit him, and you could just hear people screaming, right? The Bruins bench is on fire because he's just – look, he just hit their – their best defensive center and put him out of the game. And, and, and you know, the, the Canes are yelling at him to, to watch out. And, and right from there, that game took off. And it was one-sided, but it took off right from there. And it was the physicality that was brought into the game that woke the Bruins up. Yeah. And if you forgive me for going on a little bit of a tangent here, I want to say this. We see hits like that in the game. That McAvoy hit was him driving right through the body on Jordan Stahl. That was a textbook hit. The elbow comes up at the end but doesn't, it's not a factor in the hit at all. And, it, and it's just like the, the momentum. Yet I see on social media, well, elbow to the head, you know, he's going to get penalty, you know, he's going to get suspended. But that is, to me, and you may disagree, Sean, that hit is a pure, hard hockey hit that we need to see and love in this game. And you're right, it completely changed the game. So that's me off on my tangent about just what the hit was. It was a huge factor in the game. But do you agree? I mean, when you saw the hit, McAvoy and the way he drove through the body on that hit, I thought to myself, textbook right there. Yeah, no. I And, and look, people are going to be upset. And if it had happened the other way, Bruins fans would be screaming that whoever the broadcaster the would to, be to Marchand should be suspended. I mean, that's just the way that these things happen. And you're going to interpret anything the way you want. Look, it's, it's how many years later – and we're still arguing about the Scott Stevens, Eric Lindros hit, right? Like mm -hmm. th these are just things that happen. And, and depending on what side of the civil war you're on, that's how you're going to interpret it. And, and who knows where the truth is. The players know. And, and the other thing I think is there was no, there was no outcry during None. the game. The, the hurricanes, you know, didn't, act out during the game there was no going after him there was no post game there was no mention of it like to me the players again keep that game honest and the fact that it was it was gone yeah. suggests that there was not really a problem with the hit and you see Jordan Stahl going off the ice and throwing his stick I think he's more mad at himself that he allowed himself to get hit like that not that he got hit like that that he allowed the hit to happen that he put himself into that position that's I think where the anger was it wasn't because he thought McAvoy did something to him 
that he shouldn't have done. No, that, that was more Jordan Stahl being mad at, at Jordan Stahl. But anyway, what this brings up, Sean, the Bruins were seeing them. We saw Vegas now eliminate Chicago. You're, you're seeing Philadelphia do it. You're seeing, you know, these teams, St. Louis coming back the way they did, uh, down 2 nothing. back now even 2-2, and we'll talk about it a little bit with Darren Pang shortly. You're seeing the cream rise. The only one that isn't is the Washington Capitals, right? I mean, so you got Vegas eliminating Chicago, but the, the cream rising, these teams that were the warm-up teams, right? I mean, they played in the round robin just to get their games in order. Tampa doing it too. They're rising up now. The best is becoming the best. Yeah, and, and I think that was one of the advantages, right? And people thought at the beginning it wasn't an advantage because you're playing three games that don't really mean anything. And some of the teams got punished. The Bruins went from a one to a four. You know, I, I think Carolina would have liked to have played anybody else as the five seed than the Bruins as we were the President's Trophy winner. Um, but they slowly got to their game. They only played three games. You know, most everybody else played four or five to advance. And, you know, you look at Tampa Bay and Columbus, and Columbus played so much hockey. You know, just every game, one goal game, overtime, five overtimes. They they played like six games in like seven days when you added all the time up together. And, and that's a huge advantage for Tampa. Like, you know, as this series goes on, and John Tortorella was completely honest about it earlier this week. He's like, my team's dog tired like we've played so much hockey you know it physically wears on you it mentally wears on you and you know if any team can overcome it I think it's a John Tortorella coach team and just some of the guys they have on that team their mental toughness uh you know Nick Foligno who we had on on here way back in the day when this whole thing started you know is is a great captain and and so mentally strong but you you know you can't you can't fight physical fatigue at some point it just slows you down and you can't execute at the level you were so to me that's that's part of it right is teams have played so much and they found their game faster but that window started to shrink as the other teams got up to their fourth and fifth game and there was a little bit more juice into what they were doing so and and now you're definitely you're starting to see it you know you're seeing it with Colorado um you're seeing it with Dallas right everybody thought Dallas was in so much trouble they couldn't score in the in the round robin they're still at times having a little trouble scoring but they've given calgary all they can handle and more and they're one game away from knocking them out of the playoffs so yeah yeah the the good teams are starting to be the good teams again except the one and we'll 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 bring this up when we talk to brendan burke and you're going to hear that interview next but the capitals they finally get a win against the islanders and and i thought it was their captain the grade eight number alex you know alex ovechkin took over that game uh to me, he was shooting like he was trying to win four games at once, the way he was shooting the puck. Um, but, you know, he, so he takes over that game, and they win to make it a three-to-one series, avoid getting swept. But I, I, don't, see how, I don't see how Washington is going to make history here with a, you know, coming back against the Islanders. And they're the one team that hasn't been able to rise as the other seven in the round-robin round teams have. And I'm not sure why that is. I, I think it's more along the lines of, you know, the Islanders are just a very tough opponent right now. Yeah, and we're going to let Brendan talk about that more. But, I look, I'm going to take the fool's errand, and I think that the Capitals are going to make a series out of this. And, and, you know, I said the same thing last year all through when the Penguins were playing the Islanders. You know, I'm like, oh, the championship pedigree, it'll come home to roost. You're going to see it, you know. And, but I believe that. Look, the, the Caps need to get Nick Backstrom back, and he needs to be good. Um, he's starting to skate again, and if they can get him back and that gets that first line going, it slides everybody down a little bit more where they need to be. John Carlson, I think, needs to be a little better than he has been. Um, but, I, look, I think they can make a series out of it. I, I, I don't think championship teams go away because they have. We just talked about the Bruins. They, they have that DNA of winning and understanding what you need to do to win. So I think if Ovechkin plays like he played in game four, he changes that because he forces them to take penalties. They get on the power play and they win one more game and they put a seed of doubt in the Islanders head. So, but Brendan Burke knows better than I, because he covers that Islander team all the time. So let's, let's get to our interview with him. Yep. And here it is. Brendan Burke uh, chatting about the Islanders, all things, you know, NHL, cause he's seen almost all things NHL in these playoffs. Here's that interview with Brendan Burke. Brennan, thanks for jumping on with us right now. We were just chatting before we started. You've worked 14 of the last 18 days, and you've called 17 of the 24 teams that qualified. How do you do it all, man? How's everything? 
Oh, it's great. You know what? It's a, it's such a unique situation for, for so many reasons, but um, you know, I, I would much rather be in one building and covering one series or maybe two, which I've been able to do uh, a couple of times, but being able to kind of bounce around, it's been uh, it's been a lot of work, a lot of fun, a very unique situation. And uh, hopefully I never get the chance to do it again. Everything about the restart and, and the playoffs has, has been different. And I'm curious, you know, we just mentioned you did so many teams. Do you, do you see differences in, in how teams are approaching this and, and, and how they've come back from the restart to what you saw before the pause? Um, I mean, yeah, certainly if you, if you want to compare the, the way they're playing now to, you know, the way they were playing at the pause, I think it, it's almost completely unrelated. It was, you know, we kind of had that feeling coming in that, um, you know, I could give you all the stats you want from four and a half months ago, but I don't think that has any bearing on what we're about to see. And, and that's kind of what we've, we've seen play out, you know, through the qualifying round and through this first round. And I think the thing you're seeing now is that you're, you're taking those teams that kind of, you know, didn't really turn it on during the, the round robin. And now they're the higher seeds and now they're starting to get into their game, the St. Louis's and the Boston's. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's been a, a more of a gradual process for those teams, or at least some of those teams. I know, you know, Vegas and Colorado are certainly the exception. Philadelphia has been on fire. But, um, you know, it's it's been interesting to watch these teams and their progression throughout um, the last couple of rounds. And for me, who's, you know, most specifically, you know, focused on the Islanders who were playing very poorly at the pause and had lost a number of players to injuries. They get back, they get healthy. They have a training camp with some of their new acquisitions and JG Pajo and Andy Green and just kind of look like a team that was primed and ready to go for the playoffs, where if they had made the playoffs um, without a pause in April, it would have been backing their way in. So um, it, it certainly has changed their outlook on this entire situation. I wanted to ask you about the Islanders because obviously you're so focused on them and you bring up the teams that have sort of the cream rising, but they're going to try to stave off and the, the, the Capitals who were one of those teams at the top, you know, they, they almost swept them. They didn't. Ovechkin took over that game, obviously, and now it's a three to one. But are you surprised at all from what you've seen from the Islanders because of the fact that they were going so poorly before the pause and it's not, I mean, yeah. Okay. Pajot's there and he's, you know, he's, he's comfortable now and Pelic is back, but they didn't, add a huge element or whatnot. And, and yet here they are playing what Barry Trotz like to call Islander hockey as well as I can remember them playing it. Are you surprised at all by it? Uh, I'm, I'm not really. And, I, and I'll tell you why. There's two reasons. One is you talk about the health. Adam Pellick is maybe not a name that everybody around the NHL knows or recognizes as an elite player, but he is a very, very good defenseman in the National Hockey League, and he is integral to the Islanders' success on the back end. They lost him on January 2nd and never really figured out how they were going to replace him and his minutes and his role. And they really never did, um, even when they picked up Andy Green. So getting him back and getting him healthy, having Casey Sezikis back and healthy, which he wasn't, Cal Clutterbuck wasn't healthy, so he comes back in. So you've got all those pieces, and all of a sudden, you're back at the beginning of the season with a healthy roster and a team just coming out of training camp. When the Islanders were healthy and just coming out of training camp in October, they ran off a 17-game point streak, and then it got derailed a little bit, and the injury started kicking in, and the fatigue started kicking in, and then you get into that back half of the season where you really don't practice a whole lot, and it's kind of survival mode where you're traveling and you're playing games and you're not practicing, and I think that's where the details of their game tend to slip. It's a game that's not built with a huge margin for error, and so when you have a team that is built on structure and details and you get away from some of those structure and details, that's when you start losing hockey games. And I think for having Barry Trotz getting a second training camp right into the playoffs, he's reinforced all those details and structures. Everybody's healthy. And now you're starting to see the results. Uh, you know, until they lost game four against the Capitals, they had won seven of the eight games in the bubble, including the exhibition game against the Rangers. So um, you're starting to see what we saw at the beginning of the year when they were healthy and playing, you know, to the best of their abilities. And, you know, fortunate for them, they've been able to pick that up here, um, you know, once August rolled around. I always like to talk to people who are around coaches on a daily basis, the same coach, and have those conversations to get ready for a broadcast or whatever it is. I'm curious, what makes Barry such a good coach? Something that people don't know about him that makes him the elite coach that he is today. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, he's a fantastic human being. I think that's probably the first thing that everybody says about him that, that plays for him and that works with him and that is around him on a daily basis. He's just a good person. And I think that resonates with the players 
Um, you know, they care about him. He cares about them. Um, there's a belief and a trust factor there. And, and I think that's more on a personal level than it is on a coaching level or even on a hockey level. I think that's just, um, you know, Barry Trotz, who he is. And because of who he is, you know, he's surrounded himself with people that are in that similar mindset and that similar mold. So he's built this coaching staff that is very close. Um, and he's got, you know, the players that are, are buying in and believing. And, you know, so much of coaching success is not necessarily being able to teach the players the way you want them to play or where they're supposed to be on a breakout or a forecheck, but it's about getting them to trust you and believe that what you were telling them is best for them and best for the team. And I think he has that innate ability to get the players that play for him to do that. I mean, you can look back at, you know, the transformation or the evolution of a guy like Alexander Ovechkin when he had in Washington or Wilson became in the four years of Barry Trotz in Washington. Um, and you look at what doing now with Matt Barzell or a guy like, you know, Matt Barzell, 82-point player, 86-point player, won a Calder Trophy the year before he got there. Barzell's in the, in the 50s and 60s in terms of point totals, but he's a much better hockey player than he was during his Calder Trophy season. Um, you know, and a guy like Anthony Beauvillier is having a great playoff and I think starting to get some recognition from people outside of Long Island. Um, you know, but he's a good young hockey player that's come a long way under Barry Trotz. So um, I think he has a, a great ability to to connect with both the young players and the veterans and get them to buy into the way he wants them to play. And, you know, nothing breeds uh, belief like results. And so far, he is so good for him, you know, coming to the Islanders of turning the team around last year, cutting way down on the goals against, you know, and taking him back to the playoffs this year. So it's kind of hard to question him at this point. Yeah, I think Barzell's the perfect example, and you brought him up there. Brennan, I wanted to ask you, though, about you and what this whole thing has been like for you. What is it like to call a game off of a monitor, or call a game off of the TV, basically? Uh, what do you miss? What, what, what are the challenges in doing the, those things when you're, when you're in a studio but not in the arena? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, normally I've called a game off monitor a couple of times. I actually did a couple of exhibition games from China for NBC off of monitor, you know, a, lot, a couple of years ago. And the hard thing about that, well, amongst other things, was, you know, feeling the atmosphere of the building. Now, there is no atmosphere in the building, so that's a little bit different. But you, you've got to try and forget about the fact that you're not there and bring that same energy and emotion, which I thought would be hard. Um, and it's not. <laughs> it's, I, I'm assuming it's kind of like the players. I, I think you once you get in the moment, you just kind of stay in that moment and, and forget about how weird it actually is for you to be standing in a room by yourself yelling at a television. So although I, I think more people do that than I, I probably give them credit for. Um, but, it, I, you know, the challenge for me is that um, it, it's basically me sitting next to you on your couch watching TV trying to do my job. Um, I don't have a whole lot of additional resources. We have one other camera that shows us a, a shot from the rafters, basically, where you can check and see things behind the play sometimes. But you only can look at one thing at one time. And so you're pretty much just focused on that main monitor. And so you miss things behind the play. I, I swear every single penalty in the how many games I've done has been called by the back referee, not on the screen. I mean, it's, it's, un, it's unbelievable. Every single time it's just random whistle. Oh, there's a penalty. Or you think it's a penalty. You're not sure it's a penalty. And either the other team touches the puck and there's a whistle or you see a sixth skater just pop onto the screen out of nowhere um, and you kind of get that idea. So, I mean, those are the challenges. I, you know, I had a unique situation on the Matt Barzell game-winning overtime goal in game three where he had slid behind the Washington defense and with the way the camera panned up the ice, I didn't know he was, he was there. I didn't even know he was on the ice until he had the puck and he was in on a breakaway. Uh, you never be surprised as a broadcaster because you never want the viewer or the listener to be surprised as well because that's not fair. But at this point, it's just the reality of the situation. Sometimes we're, we're going to get surprised and, and we're all kind of adjusting to that. Is the other part of that the, the chemistry that, that you have with partners and stuff like that? I know when Dan and I do this podcast and we're no longer in the same room like we used to be in the NHL office, sometimes we step on each other and it's hard to get from one thing to another. And, and clearly you're used to having whoever your partner is two feet away from you and you can read their facial cues, you point back and forth. Has that been more difficult than you thought? Um, not really, because 
so for MSG, I'm actually in the same room as Butch Goring. So, you know, we can still kind of have that same, you know, interaction that we would normally do. Um, at NBC, it's a little bit different, but it's also the same because normally, um, you know, Pierre McGuire's in Edmonton and I'm in, in Stanford, Connecticut, but normally I'm in the press box and he's between the glass and, and in between the benches. So I'm not necessarily next to him either. And I work a lot with Pierre. So it, it just kind of, it, it's kind of the same thing when we have the three person booth, then I'll have AJ or I did a game, you know, with, uh, with Eddie Olchick and Pierre, it, it's a little bit different that way because more so for them than for me, I pretty much know when the pucks in play and things are happening, I do my job. Um, but then for those guys who can't really um, even feel when they're in the same building or talk about it, it, it falls a lot on the producer to kind of be a traffic cop and make sure everybody knows, you know, who's talking when and what's going on. It, it's, it, it's, it's relatively normal because it's, it's not all that different from having a guy between the benches during the game, but um, it's, it's a little bit different just because you're, you're not actually in the same building. What about in terms of, have you had any close calls in terms of missing? Like, cause you, you would do an Islander game in New York city at the MSG network studio and then have to do an NBC game later in the day in Stanford. And for those who don't know, that's about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour without traffic. Any close calls? One. Uh, and it, wa- it wasn't all that close. Uh, normally I had been doing, you know, the Islanders were getting a steady diet of noon starts. Um, so that kind of freed up the rest of the day. So I was getting, I was doing a lot of first game of the day in New York and last game of the day in Stanford at 1030. Um, but there was a Friday during the qualifying round that I did a noon game in Manhattan and a, a 6.30 game um, in Stanford. And if you have ever tried to drive that, you mentioned no traffic. If you ever try to drive from New York City to Stanford on a Friday in the summer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, um, instead of that one hour to an hour and 10 minutes, it took almost two hours. So. I got to Stanford at five o'clock instead of where I would normally be there by four thirty at the latest. I got there at five, and I think actually the game before us in Edmonton went to overtime, so the six thirty start was more like seven o'clock, and I had plenty of time. But um, we try not to push it too much about risking either uh, side of having an issue. Obviously, it'd be a lot worse if I couldn't make it to an Islanders game than an NBC game because they've got a stable of people that can kind of jump in and, and fill in. But, um, you know, that, that was about it. And I, I think my doubleheader days are done. So I think we've managed to navigate through all of that. As somebody who regularly drives from New Jersey to Rhode Island, I don't envy you that trip up 95. You need a helicopter is what you need. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe in a few years. Not yet. Obviously, you've seen a ton of teams. You, you know, you mentioned I think seventeen. Has there been any team other than the Islanders that's captivated you in, in what they've been able to do so far in the playoffs? Um, I, you know what? I'm fascinated by Colorado. I, I just think they're they're such a good team and a skilled team. And you know, I, I think Nathan McKinnon deserves more love than he gets. Um, that guy is is a freak of nature. You know, like everybody talks about Connor McDavid and his skating abilities and and his speed. And and I get that, and he deserves all that. But the way Nathan McKinnon skates, uh, the speed that he generates, the edge work, and the body that he's doing it with that is significantly different from every other guy you talk about in terms of a speed and skilled and edge game, I mean, Nathan McKinnon is is worth the price of admission. So, um, you know, I I think Colorado's got a heck of a hockey team. I think they've been, you know, obviously the Avalanche and Vegas are the two best teams in the West, and I don't think that that's going to change uh, here during this playoffs. I think we're headed towards that as a conference final. Um, and, and I, I personally, I, I worked with Jared Bednar in the American Hockey League, and I'm a big Jared Bednar fan, so I, I like watching that team play. And uh, I only got to do one of their games uh, in this round, and it was a 7-1 win over Arizona, so maybe I got a little bit of a different view than some <laughs> other people. But, um, you know, I, I like when Colorado plays, and I think that, uh, you know, maybe they're a team that if you are just a casual fan and you don't maybe live on the East Coast and don't watch the West a whole lot, make it a point to watch that Avalanche team and that top line. It, it's a lot of fun. You know what? You, you brought up the Avalanche, so I wanted to ask that you did do a game of theirs, and obviously you follow the whole league. I, my question with them, Brennan, is will they be able to withstand a heavy hockey series like if they would play if they played St. Louis or if they played Vegas? Is that, is that a team built to withstand that type of hockey? I mean, you see it on a regular basis with the Islanders. They play a, that type of style too, that, you know, grinded out heavy hockey style. Can Colorado, with their speed game, withstand that type? That's my question about it with, with the Avalanche. Yeah, I'm, I, I guess it depends on – I think they can, uh, as, as, a, as a quick answer to that question. I also think that 
I, I think the question would be, can St. Louis adapt to a speed game if Colorado can assert that? You know, I, I think that if Colorado's playing the way they're playing and they have those horses, you know, is another team going to be able to dictate the style of play? Uh, or are they just going to run around and, and have St. Louis chasing the whole time or a team like that? So um, it, it'll be interesting for sure. But, yeah, can, can they win a game 2-1? to one? You know, that's a different type of hockey game. Um, you know, uh, teams like the, you know, right now you bring it up with the Islanders, you know, the Washington Capitals, they're, they're getting a steady diet of that and seeing if they can grind it out and, and wear a team down. So I, I think it's possible that a team like St. Louis or Dallas or a heavier team, you know, could make it interesting. Even Vegas, who, who has the ability to play a heavy game. Um, but I, I think Colorado may be deep enough. I think, uh, you know, their two lines, you know, Nas and Kadri has, has changed that whole dynamic of giving them a little more depth there in the top six. And so, um, I, I think Colorado, the way they play, will be able to somewhat dictate um, the matchup in terms of, of playing that style, but I think they might be able to withhold it as well. Brendan, we want to thank you for uh, joining us on your rare day off, and I'm going to ask you one more question before we let you go. You just talked about the Islanders and, and how they've been able to kind of dictate the pace, and then we saw Alex Ovechkin take over last night in, in game five, in game four and, and avoid the sweep. Does this series go deeper, or you think it's uh, it's going to be relatively short after this? I, I think it's certainly possible it goes deeper. I think that you know we spent the first three games of that series waiting for that push from Washington, and it just never came. And then we waited for it again in Game Four, and the Islanders are up two nothing. And you know I, I work with a lot of smart hockey people, and I work with Butch Goring, who who I trust very much. Um, and when Butch Goring and Barry Trotz give you the same analysis of the game, which we got last night, um, I'm going to go with that. And what they both said, Butch said it during the game and Barry Trotz echoed it afterwards. He said, it came too easy for us at the start of game four. And, and I think Barry said, we just didn't have enough skin in the game from that point. And so I think for the Islanders, I think they thought they had done it. I think they thought they'd slayed the dragon. They were up three games to none and they're up to nothing and they turned it off. And so while, yes, Washington took over and penalties played a large role in their comeback and the way they played in that game, and they were by far the better team, I don't think they had the, the fully engaged efforts of the New York Islanders after the first 10 minutes of the game uh, in game four. So um, I think it's possible that Washington generates a little mojo from it and, and keeps on moving and maybe wins another game and forces again. But um, I think the Islanders will not be taken by surprise anymore. And the Caps, if they're going to make this a series, they're going to have to earn it a lot harder than they did in game four. No, I, I 100% agree with you. That's why I don't see it going very much longer because the Islanders aren't that type of team that's going to let that happen again. Barry Trotz isn't that type of coach that's going to let that happen again, in my opinion. But, Brennan, we'll let you go. It's your day off, so go enjoy it. Thanks so much for hopping on with us for a few minutes, all right? You got it. Anytime, guys. Good stuff there with Brendan. Glad he was able to jump on with us, especially on his off day, Sean. So that's nice. The guy doesn't get a lot of off days. So uh, good for him. We don't get a lot of off days either. So let's just point that out as well. Uh, wanted to, before we bring in Darren Pang, who's our second guest today, let, let's talk about Carter Hart. 22 years old, just turned 22 years old, and back-to-back shutouts. Uh, second youngest goalie in NHL history. First in 75, youngest in 75 years to have back-to-back shutouts in the Stanley Cup playoffs. He's been good. The Flyers have been good the last two games after responding, you know, rebounding from that awful performance in game two. And to me, Hart's doing what he needs to do, and the Flyers are just simply doing what they need to do to beat Montreal. Nothing special, just just good enough. Yeah, look, if people don't know who Carter Hart is, they're going to learn pretty quick. I mean, this guy has a resume. He's only 22, but he has a resume that, you know, few can argue with. Our colleague Adam Kilman did a big feature on him uh, you know, before this before this round started about how good he is, how he may be the guy the Flyers have been looking for since Bernie Perrant, basically, to lead them in that position. You know, that's been their Achilles heel for generations of Flyer fans now. So, um, you know, and he talked to Brian Boucher, who we've had on the pod a couple of times about, you know, what makes Carter Hart so special. But look, I mean, we could talk about the Flyers and they're up 3-1 and they've scored five goals. They've been outscored six to five in this series. Their power play is atrocious. Yeah, I think it's one for 28. They're not world beaters at this point. They may well get rid of the of the uh, Montreal Canadiens, and they may only have five goals because as good as Carter Hart's been, Carey Price has been nearly as good. Um, He's got a shutout in this series. He's only 
given up five goals in four games, like I mentioned. So, you know, he's been really good. The rest of the Canadians have not been good, at, especially offensively. They have six goals. Five of them came in that one game when Carter Hart got pulled. So um, I – I don't have a true read on the Flyers yet. Yes, they took over that one seed in, in the round robin, and they looked great doing it, and they were playing really well at the end of the regular season. But I don't, I don't know that they've really played anybody tough in a, in a series yet, and I, and I need to see who those Flyers are. Well, I, I agree with you. Um, but I will also say that I think that they don't have to be special right now. I would like to see their power play be better than this. I mean, their power play looks disjointed. Um, totally out of sync. I can't figure out what they're trying to do. I don't think they know what they're trying to do right now on their power play when you watch it. And you're right, one for 28 in the playoffs. That's not going to get you very far when you start playing better teams than the Montreal Canadiens. And let's give full marks to the Canadiens. They got past the Pittsburgh Penguins, but I think the Penguins were trying to play a type of game that would normally be successful unless Carey Price becomes who Carey Price is. And then I think Carey Price started to get in their heads. The Flyers, I don't see, are letting that happen as much. And they're just trying to play a simple type of game to get past this team to move on. The question then becomes when they move on, and they will move on, can they get the rest of their game in order as the competition increases? I think they can. I believe in Elaine Vigneault as a coach. I think they're they're – we talk about depth, Sean, all the time. Their depth on their coaching staff is excellent with, with Michelle Terry and, and Mike Yo and Ian LaPerriere. So these guys will figure it out. I think right now they're just playing to get past the Montreal Canadiens. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Honestly, I, I don't. I, I think you, you have to find ways to win no matter how, you know, in the playoffs in multiple different ways. And, and right now they're finding ways to win low-scoring games based on their defense and their goaltending and not giving up much. Yeah, and speaking of... Elaine Vigneault and power plays and everything else. I can't wait to see them in the next series if they advance, which it looks like they're going to. Let's not forget that when they lost five to nothing and everybody was ready to, you know, pillory the Flyers, yeah. AV comes out and says, I can't believe the Montreal Canadiens had their first power play out when it was five nothing. And all of a sudden, the whole narrative changed. Nobody everything. ever got on the Flyers for how bad they were, and they were given the freedom. And, and the ability to not rue on how bad they were and, and kind of brush it off and move on and come back and, you know, Carter Hart's back in the net and he showed mental toughness by having the shutout. But to me, Elaine Vigneault is one of the smartest coaches, especially when it comes to playing the media. And we all have a role to play in this. And, but he is so smart when it comes to that. He literally took what could have been a disaster and he fed raw meat to his players. He fed raw meat to the fan base of the Flyers and, and he allowed them to breathe. And there was no ability to suffocate that team and ask them about how bad they were. He made the Canadians into the enemy. A hundred percent. He does this so well. I, I mean, I've covered Elaine Vigneault for a number of years now uh, throughout his entire tenure in, in New York. He does this among the best, if not the best in the league, in, like you said, feeding raw meat out there that he knows the media is going to bite, that he knows his players are going to hear. And he did it. You know, why do they throw in their power play out there in this type of game, their first power play unit? There's no chance in my, no chance that Elaine Vino is actually really mad about that because he would probably do the same thing, right? But he sees it. And he realizes, if I say these words, if I bring this up, it's going to change headlines. It's going to change the narrative. And that's exactly what it did. And the Flyers have not allowed a goal since then. Well, Carter Hart's had something to do with that. Yes. But I, I'm telling you, I will enjoy AV for as long as he lasts in this playoffs. Absolutely. There's no question about it. He does it so well. Uh, before we bring in... Darren Pang, who is our next guest, uh, we should talk about the team that he covers extensively and he calls their games. The Blues, Jake Allen. We're talking about Carter Hart. I mean, the guts, I don't even think it was actually that much guts on Craig Berube. I think it was the right move to uh, switch from Jordan Bennington to Jake Allen after game two against Vancouver. Look, Jordan Bennington wasn't getting it done and the Blues weren't getting it done. It was the right move to switch. Jake Allen had a strong regular season. He's a good backup goaltender. They believe in him. He comes in. He plays extremely well in game three. They win in overtime and then they dominate game four. I mean, he, he, he could have been reading magazines back there at times because they were so good and with the puck. Um, 
I like the move from Craig Berube. I like going back-to-back with Jake Allen. I think it was smart. I think it was a good coaching decision. I like the fact that he doesn't get himself married to one guy just because that one guy won the Stanley Cup last year. Yeah, uh, look, I disagree with you a little bit. It is the right call, but sometimes the right call takes a lot of guts. Because Maybe, okay, I'll give you that. Because it's not the popular call, right? There's a sentimentality there among the players and among the fans to Jordan Bennington. He did something for them that'll last forever. He is the guy. He's the Cinderella story, all of that. To sit there as a coach and say, it doesn't work for me anymore. Look, we just talked about the Carolina Hurricanes. Ron, uh, Rod Brindamore did the same thing. He went from Mrazic to Reimer, and he's done it throughout, and it backfired on him, right? And so all of a sudden, when it's 2-0, it's the right call in that game. And then when it's 4-2, to it's the wrong call. So, you know, if things didn't work out with Jake Allen, Craig Berube would be getting roasted by us, by everybody else. So it takes guts. It takes – a ton of guts. It would be like pulling Tuka Rask if he didn't leave and saying Yaro Halak's my number one goalie now. You just you can never win unless you're right. So if he's right, he's going to be a genius. If he's wrong, it was the dumbest move in the history of coaching. So I, I do think it takes guts and and right now it looks like the right call. And you know, again, maybe Bennington comes back at some point and you know they they try and pull the rotation that some other teams have tried to pull, but. Who knows? But I, I think it was right, and I think it was gutsy. Well, I, I, I'll give you that. Fine. But I, what, I, what, I won't, what I will say to that, just to cut it in half, is when, I, when he went back to him on the back-to-back, not only was that right, I don't think anybody would have uh, gotten on his case if it didn't work out in Game 4. And the reason I say that is because people saw how Jake Allen played and how they played in front of him in Game 3. And universally, I think that was the right decision, that everybody was saying that was the right decision to go back to Jake Allen for game four, even on a back-to-back. And the guy hadn't played a back-to-back in three years, more than three years. I just, I think that was a no-brainer, if you ask me. And, and gut's fine, but it, it was the right coaching decision to go back to that. If they lost the game, you may be, oh, why didn't you go to Bennington? Well, because Jake Allen played a great game in game three, and he's, He's fine. He's rested. He's, he's okay. He can handle this. It's just one back-to-back. But they come back and they win the game. And they played so well in game four. It was a domination. They caved him in possession-wise. Yeah, and Darren Pang knows better than either you or I what makes him tick. And I'm sure one of the things we're going to talk about is Ryan O'Reilly because we can talk about Jake Allen all we want. But Ryan O'Reilly's driving that bus, and it's unbelievable to watch. So let's get to, let's get to Darren Pang and find out what's going on in Blues land. Darren, thanks so much for hopping on with us. Uh, Before we get to Blues Canucks, which we'll talk a lot about, we do want to get some of your thoughts on Dale Howarchuk, obviously passed away Tuesday, 57 years old. But you knew him. You played against him. You watched him a lot. Uh, What do you remember from Ducky? Ducky was a great player. Um, I I, I loved watching him play. Um, I remember seeing the Memorial Cup when he was playing for Cornwall. And, you know, I, I think for a lot of us, whether we were goalie or defenseman or whatever, we just, you know, some of the, the, the great young players, our eyes were attached to them, whether it be, you know, Wayne Gretzky or guys earlier, probably Marcel Dion and Mary Lemieux. And, but, but Dale Howardchuk just was fascinating to me in the way that he played and his hands and um, got to know him a little bit. Like, like most of us, um, everybody seemed to, maybe the days have changed, but you, you always seem to run into somebody at a restaurant, at a bar after a game, you know, what, whatever it might be. And, you know, the one thing about Dale was he was so so not a superstar in the way he treated everybody. He just treated everybody like they were just hockey players. And uh, that's one thing I'll remember about, about, about Ducky and the way he was. And um, I've got teammates of mine and friends of mine that played with him. And uh, whether it be, you know, the players themselves or their wives, um, you know, friends. Like, he, I, I don't know. He's just an impactful guy. Everybody says, oh, he treated me so well. You know, wives say, well, he was a great guy. And. And so all, all in all, I just, I just think this is a very sad time for us to lose somebody, you know, so young in life and has so much to give. And he was a great coach in the Ontario Hockey League. And I know some players that played for him. And I think he just, I don't know, he gave back and, and, uh, and was a great player. So it's, it's, a, it's a sad moment, certainly for, for Dale's close friends and his, uh, you know, and his family. And for his son to tweet that out must have just been heartbreaking for him. 
for for those who are younger and and really didn't get a chance to see Dale play, and for me, it was at the very end of his career. Is there somebody in today's game that that's comparable? I know sometimes it's hard to make those comparisons, but do you, when you look across the NHL landscape, do you see somebody who was similar to him? Well, you know what, you look for somebody that might not have the 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 prettiest skating stride. I, I always found that with uh, with Dale, like it, he looked like he had a choppy skating stride, but yet he got there and. Uh, it's hard to compare the hands that he had. I'll, I'll be quite honest with you. The only guy in that era for me that you could compare his hands were like Wayne, you know, and, and, you know, Wayne wasn't the most fluid skater, but his, his Wayne's straight ahead stride was still spectacular. Um, Dale's straight ahead stride wasn't, but then he could go side to side and he could toe drag and put it through your legs and forehand backhand. I, I don't know if there's a player, I'll be honest with you, that, that compares with, with the hands that were as good as Dale Howarchuk's. I mean, like even guys that are coming out of the, you know, let's say the Quebec League or the Ontario League or the Western League that are being drafted. I know the times have changed and defending's, you know, what it is. But, I mean, he had 81 goals, and, and I am reading this, I didn't remember, but he had 81 goals and 183 points uh, in 1981 when they won the Mora Cup. Like 183 points in 72 games. I mean, like oh, Mario had, what, 283 points. I mean, there's... There, there are really good players that we see nowadays, but he was a special player. And uh, so it is hard to compare. But I think you always look at a guy that has good hands and that maybe not, that doesn't have the greatest skating stride or doesn't catch the eye test. But uh, mm. that would be Dale Howarchuk for me. Yeah, and he will be missed, no question about it. But, Darren, let's get to the series that you are obviously very focused on with the Blues and the broadcast, the Blues Canucks. And Sean and I were just talking about it before, uh, the idea of Jake Allen going in the net. I said I don't think it took that much guts from Craig Berube just based on the way that Jordan Bennington and the Blues were playing. He said it takes a lot of guts. Where do you lie on that, and what did you think of the change to Jake? Well, I thought it was the right move at that time. And the reason, the reason being is the way in which the Vancouver Canucks were scoring their goals. Uh, obviously, we're mesmerized by the highlight, uh, real goals of, 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 of Horvat. But there was an area that they just kept going to. They kept going to the stick side. They kept going through the, the arm. And I know as a goaltender, when, when you don't get a lot of shots, which, of course, uh, he wasn't getting the sustained pressure. It was more like a shotgun offense. It was more like, bang, here comes a two-on-one. Bang, here comes a four-on-one. Here comes, here comes uh, you know, Bo Horvat or, or Miller with some speed. So I, I just think that he wasn't able to get into any kind of groove, any kind of rhythm. So... Uh, changing it up and giving the Vancouver Canucks a different look in net. Uh, for me, it was a no-brainer. As I, as I left game two, I, I said it to John Kelly and our guys. I said he's, he's going to have to make a goaltending change, if not for just one game, and, and let things settle down. So um, it doesn't happen often, and maybe the next series will be different. Maybe the next series, uh, you know, it's a Jordan Biddington series. But for right now, there's no question that Jake Allen just looks huge in the net, and he looks very, very calm and in the middle of the net and so that's why that change to me was a was a no-brainer at that particular point now going back to jake allen for the back-to-back i was thinking would he make the change and go back to bennington again but uh again he uh he meaning craig berube had no questions there and he, and he made the right call again Hey, Darren, speaking to Jake Allen, what a testament to him to be able to come in and, and seize a moment that he didn't know that he was going to have. You know, he was replaced last year by Jordan Bennington, who went on that great run and, and basically lost his number one job. And, and some people thought maybe, you know, this was a crossroads of his career. Um, but, you know, he comes in and he does exactly what the Blues need. And, and for now, at least, has taken over the net. It has to be impressive to watch. You know, I, I think with Jake um, that people don't see on the outside – when, when you see him like every day, and that's what I do. I watch him practice every day. You, you, I talk to him in the locker room. I see the way he works out. Um, like he's just the ultimate pro. He doesn't get nearly the amount of respect that he should um, other than in his locker room and, and in the St. Louis area. He's, he's actually turned it around um, with how he acted when Jordan Binning took over. Um, he's been revered by his teammates and our fans here in St. Louis. It was a big difference. Um, this year when he got in the net compared to last year early on when the team was struggling, he kind of took the brunt of the criticism, which was unfair, but he did. And then Bennington took the excess of, of, of applause. And then, you know, then this year, because they won and, and fans started hearing what Jake Allen did behind the scenes, I think they kind of turned around and said, you know what, this guy's an awesome guy. This guy is a great teammate. And that's one of the things that I think we tried to really sell 
on our broadcast and let people know what goes on behind closed doors. So to put it quite frankly, once he got in that net, it didn't surprise me one iota that he would play well or that the team would play well because his stats in the regular season were top five. And his stats in the playoffs for goalies that have played at least 25 games, his goals against average is in the top four with Hasek and Brodeur. Uh, I know Lalim's number one on that one that's played, you know, not, not as many games, but that's a, that's a heck of a stat there to throw at you. So he's, he's uh, anyway, he, he played well, he gave them what they needed, and they've got a lot of confidence in him. They do, but let, let's be, give credit where it's due as well. The, the Blues in, just in general look better than they looked in games one and yes, two. They do. And the way they played in game four was, I mean, that was the Stanley Cup championship team that we saw last year. Did you expect that? As the, Darren, when they started this series, they were playing a couple of games. The round-robin games weren't nearly as intense as what Vancouver was playing. Did you expect, expect I don't want to say losses, but that it would take St. Louis a couple of games to get to the level that, it knows, that the Blues know that they can play at? Well, I knew after watching, first of all, the exhibition game, which didn't mean anything to them, but then the way that they kind of relinquished leads in the round robin, I was a little bit concerned. I mean, I'm thinking, how do you find your game when clearly um, I hadn't seen it since uh, March 11th in Anaheim? So, you know, can you turn it on? No. So the, the, the one part that kept me kind of going back to the Winnipeg series last year was how physical they were. And it was almost like they were saying, this is going to go seven games. This is the way we prepare for series. We prepare for them to be seven game series. And the hits that we get in in game one, the hits that we get in in game two will make a difference in games five, six, and seven. And so when I started seeing Braden Shen running around and hitting everything in sight and then getting 11 hits in game two, I actually felt pretty comfortable after game two thinking they're fine in their game. Whether they're going to have enough uh, uh, real estate to work with at the very end, I'm not sure but I was quite convinced that it was going to go to five or six or seven games by the time I saw the ending of game two, to be honest with you. And, and you know, yeah, you break down game one, it was a, what was it? It was a two, two game going into the third game two, Bo Horvat show overtime game three, game four. I mean, this has been a close series, a really good series, but right now, like you said, in that third period, the blues are absolutely on their game. And right now Vancouver does not have an answer for the Ryan O'Reilly line in particular. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Dan and I were kind of teasing it on the way into you. It it seems to me, I mean, obviously, look, he was the MVP last year of the playoffs, but it seems to me the Blues kind of go as as Ryan goes. Not that he was bad in the first two games, but he was the player that we saw in the Stanley Cup final against the Bruins last year where he he dominated elite players, and he's doing it again. Well, and, and one change that Craig Berube made that, that we have not seen all year, um, because Schwartz and Shen – played every game together whether Ryan O'Reilly was the centerman and Shen was the winger it doesn't matter but they were together on a line for every game other than two during the regular season so when I looked up and I saw that you know game two Schwartz with O'Reilly and Perron and then I saw the way they played I thought that was a, a, a key moment in this series that one change just like last year when the Winnipeg series he put Shen on the wing for a couple of games he put Oscar Sundquist up on that top line and he put Tarasenko down a little bit, and it made a huge difference for a few games. So I think that change has helped. Ryan O'Reilly, I don't think he played real well um, through large parts of the first, you know, three or four games of the round robin. But he and David Perron are connected now. They're, they're, now they're five yards apart, five feet apart, six feet apart, and, and Jaden Schwartz is right there with him. So I, I think that adding Schwartz to his left wing was also a really big help to Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, that line has been just dominant. They're caving them in possession-wise. They have the puck the entire yeah. time. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. You'll see if Vancouver has a response. But we know that Vladimir Tarasenko is not going to be there for St. Louis. And I mean, frankly, other than 10 games in the regular season, he wasn't there in the regular season. So is this a big loss for the Blues? Normally, you would say absolutely, because Tarasenko is that good. But what do you think? Is this a big loss regardless not having Tarasenko, or are they used to it now, not having him, that they, they'll be fine? Well, they are used to it. Um, that's, that's for sure. I mean, they proved all year long that, uh, that they weren't a, you know, they're not a one-man team. They're an everything team. And the power play, you know, without Vladdy, allowed Schwartz to get on the top unit, um, allowed um, two five-man units 
play really well and be what fourth best power play in the entire league. So that was without Vladdy, but I was still very excited to have Vladdy. They won last year with Vladdy and in the games that are one, one or uh, the opposing goaltender is absolutely on fire. Like Markstrom has been in this one. I, I really assumed that Vladdy would get to his game and he would be the difference maker in just one game. That's all it takes is one game per seven game series for him to, you know, fire that wrist shot and, and, and win a game. So I'm disappointed that he can't continue on. Uh, but in answering your question, I think the St. Louis Blues are so much about team first anyway, and they're starting to get their team game. If you listen to the comments of every player from game one to game five now, the Blues talk about playing like a team again. And so that's not an indictment about one individual like Vladdy. It's just about playing together and being all in it together. So I, I think they'll they'll plow on, and they'll try to prove to everybody that uh, – that they can do it without a really top player and a, a really good player in Vladdy Tarasenko. Darren, you have the privilege of seeing some pretty good defensemen on, on a nightly basis. And, and throughout the time you've been covering the Blues, I mean, some of the legendary people that have walked through that locker room, you know, you have it now with Petrangelo and, and Pareko and, you know, all those guys. When, when you watch, you know, through the series, you've got to see uh, Quinn Hughes a lot. When, when you watch him play, what do you think? Spectacular. <laughs> Special. Um, gamer, competitive, um, way more um, of a of a of a an engaged player than maybe some thought when he was drafted, just because of his size. Which you know me, I'm all about little guys that have got some gumption. And um, but there's been some pushback in this, this series. Uh, he's been he's been run at. Um, he's been targeted, and I, I loved his comments. What did he say after game two or three? It's an honor that the Blues are yeah. keen on me. What a, what a great thing to say from Quinn Hughes. I mean, we all know his father, you know, Jim was a skills guy and a scout and, and has been and been involved and has done a great job with his kids. But just the hockey sense and the respect for the game really impresses me. But more than anything else, I think he's showing the hockey world that, uh, that he's a gamer, he's competitive. And when the game was on the line in game four, he wanted that puck and he would not leave the ice. I was just, I, quite frankly, I'm just really impressed with, with Quinn Hughes. Really impressed. He, he has been dynamite. There's no question about it. And, I mean, the guy with, uh, on the power play, I know they went 0 for 7 in game four, but on the power play, he's just, he's so oh, good with the puck. He's a quarterback. Yeah. No, he's a he, quarterback. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the one thing that he's going to add to his arsenal as, as it goes along is uh, he's going to add to a heavier shot and shooting it a little bit more because he's just a great distributor and he sees the ice so extremely well. And I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about what else you're seeing around the playoffs, not just this series. Darren, is there a team or a player who's jumped out at you in the, in these playoffs so far that maybe surprise, I don't surprise might not be the word because you follow the league so closely, but it, you know, has jumped out at you and been like, you're like, Oh, okay. So, so that guy's for real or that team's for real. Any of those, anything along those lines? Well, before he got hurt, I mean, Svechnikov was, that was, that's, superlative i mean just a gamer just a good kid working hard um you know i think i think when i when i i mean i've been looking like everybody else has been looking i've been looking like are, are the tampa bay lightning a team that are going to play that way or when the pressure's on are they going to go back to what they did last year uh which by and large last year they they played better than what that four game sweep was but I, I'm watching them what kind of layer of sandpaper do they have and i've been really impressed with that i think they're for real and they're playing a real seven-game playoff-style hockey, so that's, that's great for them. Um, when I look at uh, – you know, you know what, player? Um, my goodness gracious. I, I, that, that, I know John Klingberg. We, we've watched him enough here. And every single time Dallas needs a goal or they pull their goalie or their, the pressure's on, that Klingberg continues to impress me. He's just so – kind of looks loosey-goosey in the way that he, he gets around guys but yet he's stealth-like, and he, his shot always gets through from the point. So uh, that part about it has been outstanding to watch. And, uh, and I, you know, I think for the Avalanche, they were, they were a favorite of mine going into this. And uh, I think they're just learning how to play this style of hockey, and I think they're just, they're, they're just been great. I, I just love watching them play hockey. I think they're, they're a team to watch, and they're going to be a great team to watch for a long period of time. I'll tell you what, having John Klingberg and Miro Heiskanen makes you a pretty good coach pretty oh. quick. <laughs> That's for sure. Rick Bonus loves that, doesn't he? 
<laughs> yeah. And and look, props uh, to Dallas. I, I they look like they were in a lot of trouble early on. They couldn't win in the round robin. They couldn't score. And then, you know, they had a tough time with Calgary early, but they've they've seemed to pull it together. When when you look at them as a whole, do do you see a championship caliber team there? Well, listen, the Blues have seen them for what, how many game sevens and, and how close have those series been? Last year Dallas could have you know, if Jamie Ben's wraparound attempt is what, a quarter of an inch more, it's in the net. Uh, I don't, I'm sure you remember that left pad stuff around save that, uh, that Bennington made. And then, of course, you know, Pat Maroon scores. So, I mean, I think they're a legitimate team. I think they've got a, a great defending line in that uh, Cogliano and, and Fosca line uh, with Como. They've obviously got some high-end skill. They've got some grunt guys. They've got Garyanov. They've got uh, uh, Rope Hints. I, I, I like their team. I just like them. I think they, they're, they're weathered, and they've got a few layers of skin and so they, they were like the blues. I, they couldn't find their way. I mean, Daryl Ray and I were going back and forth going, Oh my goodness, what happened to our teams? You know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, of course, Daryl Ray, the analyst for the, uh, for the Dallas stars. And I, you know, I think Tampa Bay was kind of like that. Washington's kind of been up and up and around now they're in trouble, but uh, uh, these teams that are finding it now are in, are in really good shape because they're trending in the right direction. Yeah. You're starting to see the cream rise. There's no question about it. Darren, Thank you so much for hopping on with us for a few minutes here and going over a little blues and uh, everything else. All right. Appreciate it. It's uh, my pleasure, Sean. And, uh, and, and guys just be good out there. Watch it, watch the games, Dan, and uh, take good notes and the goaltenders keep putting on a show. And that's the fun part. All right, Sean, that was great stuff from Darren Pang. There's no question about it. Uh, he's got that blues team covered uh, from top to bottom. And uh, I think he's right about a lot of the other teams he talked about, but Vegas is one that's already moved on. We know that they eliminated the Chicago Blackhawks. No surprise there, right? No. And look, I thought that Chicago gave them maybe a little bit better of a series than they imagined. I, look, Chicago was a team that a lot of people didn't think should be in the playoffs, and then they upset Edmonton. And, you know, uh, Corey Crawford was great for them. I thought their core was really good, but Vegas, such a deep team, you know, just able to wear you down and then it's almost unfair when they get patch ready back and they get yeah. that top line humming um you know it was it was too much too soon for a very game blackhawks team i thought to me vegas and colorado and, and maybe st louis if they can figure this out uh, those are battle royals that are going to go on but uh you know out of all this for me the the best part about it was robin laner right I, I still am a little shocked that he earned the nod over mark andre Fleury with all the history mark has in you know a very short time in vegas but uh for him to win and then you know the handshake line or the the hug line the hug line. afterwards was I, Look, the playoffs are all about great theater. I thought that was great theater, him moving down the line and just clearly emotional about people that he spent some time with and, and you know, had an impact on his career. Yeah, no no question about it. And what, uh, what a story Robin Lehner continues to write with everything he does. So good on him. Good on the Vegas Golden Knights. They're a machine. We know that. Uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, we can have four more teams to move on because we're do- recording this on Wednesday and there are four potential elimination games today. Uh, so by the time next week, no, no doubt, we'll be into the second round. So that will be interesting to see who moves on. We've talked about it enough here. The cream is starting to rise to the top. We're seeing it. The best teams are becoming the best teams again, Sean. Hey, life comes at you fast in these playoffs, and it'll be a whole new situation by the time we do this midweek next week. I'm already looking forward to it, but between now and then, I'm going to enjoy the games. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody out there, too, enjoy the games and stay safe.